1: During this podcast, we'll discuss the potential therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs for a wide range of physical and behavioral health issues, including addiction, depression, PTSD, and for patients with terminal illness. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Rick Doblin, founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. Dr. Doblin, welcome to the program. Yes,
0: David. Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Doblin's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, it appears the U.S. has finally turned the corner on examining the therapeutic use of LSD, psilocybin, and other psychedelics. Synthesized in 1938 by the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, by the 1950s, research concerning the clinical accuracy of LSD and other psychedelics had engaged 40,000 research participants and produced more than 1,000 published academic papers. However, when these drugs escaped the lab in the 1960s, panic set in over the potential social upheaval they'd cause, i.e. America's youth would, as it was feared, turn on, tune in, and drop out, as was infamously phrased. By the 1970s, these hallucinogenics were banned for both research and recreational use purposes. Interest was revived in the 90s when the FDA gave limited approval to the Hefter Institute and MAPS to conduct psychedelic-related efficacy studies. Approximately a decade later, Johns Hopkins' Roland Griffiths published the first academic paper on psilocybin in over 30 years, and by 2018, he published promising results uh, using uh, psilocybin for depression, nicotine addiction, and cancer-related distress. This work led Hopkins to announce last month the opening of the University's Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, the Hopkins News was preceded in April by news the Imperial College of London was opening a center for psychedelic research. With me again to discuss psychedelics as a therapeutic agent is Dr. Rick Doblin. Lastly, I'll note quickly, longtime listeners of this podcast may recall I interviewed Dr. Bruce Doblin, Rick's <laughs> brother, in December 2013 about hospice care. And I note that, Rick, because I want to get to use of psychedelics as it relates to end-of-life care. But with that uh, as background, my my first question has to be, uh, or I want it to be, um, what's your understanding of the effect or how these drugs affect uh, the mind or affect individuals when they consume them?
0: Well, there's two different distinctions that we need to make. The first is uh, that the classic psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, Ayahuasca, I began working um, more or less in a similar way, mostly on the serotonin system, mostly reducing activity in the default mode network, basically the um, sense of self in our brain, the equivalent to the ego almost. Uh, and MDMA operates much differently. And that it doesn't really impact the default mode network, but it reduces activity in the amygdala where we process fear, increases activity in the prefrontal cortex, help us think logically, and increases connectivity between hippocampus and amygdala to permit memories that have not been properly uh, stored in the long-term memory to be processed and put into the past. You know, the hallmark of PTSD is the past is always uh, the present and about to keep happening or people have not been able to move past their trauma. So the classic psychedelics and MDMA work in different ways. The other key distinction to make is that these drugs, as we conceive of them are not the treatment by themselves. It's only in combination with psychotherapy, with support, with preparation, with integration and support during the experience that the healing potential is really maximized. So there's the therapeutic component, and then there's a the fundamental difference in neuroscience. Uh, the other thing to say about MDMA is that it stimulates oxytocin release and really enhances the therapeutic alliance in ways that the classic psychedelics don't.
1: Okay, thank you, and thank you really for that latter uh, uh, point or answer. And we'll get to MA, or MDMA excuse me, uh, in a second. I, I, I do uh, want to make note of, I'm sure you're well aware of uh, Michael Pollan's book, how to Change Your Mind, published last year. He spent a fair amount of time, considerable time, discussing the effect that these drugs uh, have. And I did find it his uh, interesting, a commoner observation that the, relative to the effect on ego, uh, his comment was babies and children are basically tripping all the time. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, I
0: think so. I think there are more... Um Immediately responsive to what's happening. The the other sort of supporting aspect of that is having to do with ketamine when it's used for anesthesia. And ketamine has been used since the '60s for anesthesia. Uh, roughly ten times the psychedelic dose is what's used for anesthesia, and it doesn't interfere with breathing, so it's a safer drug for that purpose. But in general, anesthesiologists do not prepare people for what happens when they. Um, come out of surgery and the effects of the ketamine start to wear off. And they go through a phase, a psychedelic phase, which is called the emergent phenomena where, you know, that you're coming back into awareness, you can start to remember things. And people go through the psychedelic type uh, phase as the drug is uh, being metabolized and is diminishing. And adults have a more difficult time with that than children. And so ketamine is now used, um, more in children for anesthesia because this emergent phenomena doesn't seem to bother them the way it does bother adults. And so that suggests that maybe that it's not such an unfamiliar way of processing things for children as compared to
1: adults. Fascinating. Thank you. Interesting. Let's go to the um, state of the science or research. And we could start wherever. I I did read uh, for your website a page is concerning your Phase three clinical trial for PTSD using MDMA, which I understand is ecstasy. So if you can describe uh, how that uh, study is going forward, and then we could talk more generally about just the state of of the research um, more broadly.
0: Yeah. So um, basically, um, to give you a very fast sweep of history, um, MDMA was starting to be used in the middle 70s, uh, middle to late 70s, as a therapeutic adjunct, it was legal, um, similar to a drug MDA that was illegal, uh, methylene dioxyamphetamine, whereas MDMA is methylene dioxy, methamphetamine. So it was legal. About half a million doses were used in therapeutic contexts or personal growth contexts, not always with patients, but in uh, private homes um therapists psychiatrists but not in any kind of a public way and some of the people that used it in that way realized that this was a an experience that a lot of people would like and that more people they thought should have it and they thought they could make a whole bunch of money and they turned it into ecstasy and so it started being used in a public context in uh, bars in texas particularly the Stark club in dallas and elsewhere and that's what really attracted the attention of the DEA. They moved to criminalize it in 84. I was involved with a group of therapists and psychiatrists, and we filed for a, a DEA administrative law judge hearing to keep the drug uh, available to therapists. therapist. The judge agreed with us, but the DEA uh, emergency scheduled the drug in 85 and uh, blocked both therapeutic and also uh, recreational use, criminalized all of it. That was before the judge came out with the ruling agreeing with us. Then the DEA rejected the ruling. I started MAPS in 86 to basically bring MDMA back and bring psychedelic research back. Um, It took till, as you said, um, early in the 90s, this group of the FDA. uh, In 1990, they approved Rick Strassman doing DMT. And then in 92, they approved uh, MAPS to do an MDMA study that was a basic phase one dose response safety study. '90. Uh, three is when hefter started tried, started tried to do work for psilocybin. It took us through the 90s to do the safety project 1999 we started the first MDMA study for PTSD And it took us basically from then to 2016 to complete phase two So basically 30 years from the time MAPS was started It took 30 years to go through phase one and phase two again all funded with donations At our end of phase two meeting, November 29th, 2016, uh, FDA said, uh, yes, great data will permit you to go to phase three. So we are now in the process of um, the first of two phase three studies. Um, We're about uh, half enrolled so far in the first of phase two studies. We'll have an interim analysis of the data somewhere around uh, april or may of 2020 at which point we'll be able to um, see if we need to do any more additional subjects this will be for sample size reestimation. we anticipate by the end of 2021 early 22 if the data is uh, proving safety and efficacy which we think there's a good chance it will that fda will approve prescription use and then there's programs that are called REMS, risk evaluation and mitigation mm-hmm. strategies these are special policies that the FDA can customize her drugs to try to make uh, sure that they're used in uh, safe and efficacious ways. And so the main REMs that we're discussing now are that therapists uh, must be trained by the sponsor in the psychotherapy component. So not everybody will be able to prescribe this drug. Only people that have been through the training program that understand the therapeutic component And the drug will only be able to be administered under direct supervision of the therapist. It will never be a take-home drug um, because, as we've said, it's not the drug, it's the drug post therapy. And based on the phase two data, I'll just say FDA declared MDMA a breakthrough therapy for PTSD, and so we're we're very uh, grateful for that, and that gives us some extra meetings and expedited timelines. So... um, and we've raised roughly $34 million for phase three. Um, we've raised $75 million over the course of MAPS's history, all in donations. And the fact that a lot of these political obstacle, obstacles have been cleared out of the FDA, there's now a for-profit company, Compass Pathways, that's trying to make psilocybin into a medicine, as well as USONA, a nonprofit. So it's, this whole field is uh, emerging uh, in a tremendous way.
1: You know, when when I first see PTSD in this context, I think of the DOD for the obvious yes. reasons. What's What, if any, involvement do they have? Well,
0: um, at this point, um, we've had, a, in 1990 is the first time I tried to interest the Veterans Administration in working with MDMA. This is for Vietnam vets who still had PTSD well before the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and the therapists and psychiatrists who are interested in this field, and who work closely with patients, and who realize that a lot of patients do not get the relief that they need, you know, right now, as of September 2018, there's over a million thirty-six thousand veterans receiving disability payments for PTSD. You know, some partial, some hundred percent disabled with it. But um, so every few years, we would go back to another VA, and it would be uh, the doctors and therapists would say yes, and then the political people would squash it. So around six years ago, well, around eight years ago, I started working with Dr. Richard Rockefeller, and he was the chairman of the Board of Advisors of Doctors Without Borders. Uh, David Rockefeller was his father, um, and he came to me and he said, what's your hardest problem? He he was involved with uh, Kosovo and Serbia. and just saw the number of uh, traumatized refugees and realized there's not enough Psychiatrist or therapist to help them, and mm-hmm. then something else was needed, and so he started taking an interest in MDMA. He said, what's your biggest problem? I said, it's the relationship with the DOD and the VA, because they're the logical uh, part of the government that's paying enormous billions of a year for disability payments. You'd think that they would be interested in a new, potentially, breakthrough treatment for PTSD. So he said he would help us with that. Conveniently, his cousin was Senator Jay Rockefeller on the Senate Veterans Affairs so we had a whole series of meetings with DoD and with the secretary of the VA and meetings in the Pentagon. And the upshot of this was that we were given permission to work with leading VA therapists who had developed non-drug therapies for PTSD. We would have to pay them to blend their therapies with MDMA. They would have to use their academic affiliations, not their VA affiliations. The people who were in the study would have to come from outside the VA. And the Department of Defense indicated that they did not want us to work with active duty soldiers at the time because they were worried that uh, there's so much PTSD in the military that if they were participating in research, the concern was that there would be uh, soldiers would start self-medicating. Our argument, of course, was that means that it's an enormous problem. We should expedite the research. And so we were told start with veterans. So the first study that we did was uh, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, which is couples therapy, conjoint meaning dyad or couple, where one has PTSD and it influences the relationship. And we've been able to bring both people in the relationship, in the dyad, into treatment and both get MDMA. And it was tremendously helpful. Now we're doing work trying to blend MDMA with cognitive processing therapy, and also with prolonged exposure. So we're paying for all these. We've not got a penny from the VA. We've not got a penny from the Department of Defense. And we're hoping, though, that that sort of change well, the combination of our growing body of data plus the education that we're doing of key opinion leaders and PTSD research experts into MDMA will eventually get the VA or the Department of Defense and or the Department of Defense to start paying for research and referring patients to us in more formal ways. And there is efforts now, yet again, to try to start MDMA research inside uh, Veterans Administration facilities, and we're hopeful that over the next uh, four to six months that that will be approved. And we're also engaged in some discussions with Department of Defense officials about uh, active-duty soldiers who have PTSD who would be dismissed, uh, disabled, and moved to the VA, that some of them might want to volunteer for MDMA, which we would then pay for, uh, for MDMA therapy. So I think overall the relationship is getting better with the Department of Defense and the VA, but they're definitely not uh, profiles encouraged you know, <laughs> in terms of being pioneers um, in this sort of area of research.
1: Thank you. Disappointing, uh, uh, certainly.
0: Very, very. Because you think that they
1: would realize that um, this is both an
0: enormous uh, opportunity to reduce suffering and to save billions of dollars, and we're having to do it in a nonprofit context. Um, you, you think that they, you know, would, would uh, dust, <laughs> collect the coins underneath the cushions. <laughs> of the Department of Defense, they wouldn't even miss it if they gave us,
1: you
0: know, grants to do this research. But in any case, we've relied on private philanthropists, and we're moving through phase
1: three. Right. You'd think for, for no other reason but the suicide rate amongst uh, veterans would be sufficient. Let, let me – I mentioned uh, Hopkins uh, Imperial College. I also mentioned um, – use for addiction, uh, so tobacco cessation, nicotine, rather, um, depression. I mentioned uh, cancer-related distress. Um, what's, yeah. what's your understanding of use of these agents as it relates to patients with a terminal diagnosis?
0: Um, I think these um, drugs, psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, have enormous potential in the hospice context. And also when people are just newly diagnosed to help them adjust to the treatments that are coming up. There's actually quite a large number of people that have PTSD from medical treatments Mm -hmm. that they receive for cancer or other things. And so I think these drugs are enormously helpful. First off, they help you get out of these ruminating patterns of anxiety and fear. They do help people get out of the ego sense, and often these drugs have been used, many of them, for thousands of years, the ones like psilocybin and mescaline that have been around, ayahuasca, uh, you know, as you said in your intro, LSD is new, but these drugs have been used for thousands of years for uh, spiritual and healing purposes, so people have a different perspective on their own individual life. They don't feel so isolated. They feel part of something bigger. They lose some of their fear of death. They changed their attitude for pain. Now, I'll give you one example of uh, one patient who was using this uh, several days uh, before she died. Uh, and and that, this was actually um, a sequence of experiences that took place. Um, and at, at one um, session that was involved with um, LSD-MDMA uh, combination, um, in an underground therapy context, um, the, this woman uh, divided her body into a series of checkerboard squares and in her mind. And then she realized this colon cancer uh, where the pain was, that it was kind of localized. And then she realized that other of these checkerboard squares in the rest of her body um, felt great. You know. That, that, and so she, she recognized that she had been so focused on the pain that she had lost sight of all the rest of what was going on. And so it was basically the shift from foreground to background. The pain didn't go away, but it was easier to tolerate. And I think psychedelics can help this foreground, background shift that in a sense, the ego shifts to the background. The foreground is this enormous sweep of history, of evolution, of billions of years, of um, how we're all part of something bigger than ourselves, and that gives people a lot of sense of peace.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Let, let me just ask on one other uh, realm, or maybe your understanding of the Hopkins or Imperial work, there are various other uses. What, what other uses, I'll ask it more open-ended, do you think are, are, are promising?
0: Well, phobias. I mean, MDMA is phenomenal for phobias. I, I just was with someone at a conference, and this guy showed me this video. And um, he said that he had been taking every day recreationally in the woods. And he'd had a childhood fear of spiders ever since, terrified of spiders. And he saw this spider, a small spider, walking through the grass. The grass. And his initial fear response was attenuated, as I've described, through reduction of activity in the make-a-lot. And he was able to see the spider for just being this tiny little spider that was more scared of him than he was of bed. And so he went... To a pet store and got a tarantula. <laughs> While he's still on, under the influence of MDMA, he had this tarantula walk a non-poisonous one walk all over his uh, his body, starved. and then he sent this video to his father. who was astonished. So MDMA has been phenomenal for phobias. We're about to start a study with eating disorders. There's uh, MDMA and other psychedelics really open up the mind-body connection. There's a uh, some anecdotal reports of people who have had fibromyalgia that were helped with MDMA. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is uh, tremendously um, problematic to treat, but um, MDMA and other psilocybin uh, may actually be helping with obsessive-compulsive disorder. There's a team at Columbia University that's interested in looking at MDMA for schizophrenia. MDMA is integrative and may be helpful in that regard. There's a study in England that's MDMA for alcoholism. There's um, a whole host of of research projects uh, still to be undertaken. There's one of my favorite studies that's going on is at Johns Hopkins and NYU. It's religious leaders, people from different religious traditions coming and taking psilocybin and then reporting on their visions and how they relate to their own particular spiritual traditions or if they have visions of images from other people's spiritual traditions. Um, there's just an enormous area of research. And Stan Groff, who's the leading LSD researcher at 8 years old, he's our mentor um, for many of us. And and what he said is LSD is for psychedelics, or for the study of the mind. What the the microscope is for biology, and the telescope is for astronomy. So I I think uh, there's just an enormous amount of benefit that we can gain a knowledge from using the uh, telescope, the microscope of psychedelics to look at the mind.
1: Okay, thank you. My, my last question is, and I, and I at the outset noted that uh, these agents have been banned for several decades, and I realize this question may be naive since the federal government does not recognize or protect medical marijuana possession or use, even though nearly half the states have legalized in some way, but what's What's your understanding of the discussion of any relative to legalizing these, at least for medical purposes?
0: Well, legalizing for medical purposes means going through the FDA, right? And right. so that that's you know underway for both MDMA and psilocybin. There's efforts for ibogaine, you know, in, in a country that last year had more overdose deaths. More Americans died last year from overdoses than Americans died in all of. Uh, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. You would think that that would send out a warning that this is a national crisis and we should look at all sorts of approaches to opiate addiction. Mm i gain is one of those that could be tremendously helpful. And yet, there's really no uh, government support for that sort of research. So I I think that there is just um, misplaced priorities. And the... um, Stigma around these drugs is diminishing in the face of the acute need and also that people who have used these drugs have um, made a lot of contributions to society. So the fears of the 60s that people are going to take two men, who do drop out, um, you know, that, that's true for some, but but for most it's not. So I, I think we've reached a historical point where we're really able to look at these drugs in. Um, a less stigmatized, more scientific fashion, and that they're not necessarily tools of cultural rebellion. They were at the time, but they're not inherently so. And I'm just very hopeful for the future.
1: Thank you. I was going to note, uh, you've been at this. This was your undergraduate thesis, your master's thesis, your dissertation. You've led this MAPS organization Mm -hmm. for several decades. Looking back, did you think it would take this long Well, when I started, I thought I was hopeless,
0: but I I needed to do it anyway. So I I wasn't sure that it would ever happen. And, you know, social change is slow. I mean, we're still trying to get over the um, consequences of slavery. And that's, you know, the Civil War was 150 years ago. Right, right, right. So I I think that uh, I just feel particularly fortunate that in my own lifespan, I've seen the suppression of all psychedelic research and also the renewal. And we've got a few crucial major steps to go to really mainstream these as medical tools. And then eventually, you know, you asked about legalization. I think what's going to happen is the same as what's happened with medicine, with marijuana, that medical marijuana paved the way for changing people's attitudes and then has laid the groundwork for legalization. I think that uh, we see some efforts in Denver, to uh, make uh, the enforcement of mushrooms the lowest enforcement priority. Uh, Oakland expanded that to uh, plant psychedelics in general. Uh, They call it decriminalized nature. Oregon is going to have a ballot initiative to try to uh, create a parallel system of therapists and uh, supervised use for people who are patients, also for personal growth with psilocybin. There's going to be more efforts to decriminalize drugs. But I think that that we're going to take the 2020s, that whole decade, to establish thousands of psychedelic clinics that where people would be cross-trained from ketamine to LSD to psilocybin to MDMA. And once we have these clinics set up in every town that has a hospice or more than that, right now there's 6,500 hospices in America, something like that, that, that we would end up... Um, changing enough attitudes so that we would move into a uh, post-prohibition legal, licensed legalization context, um, I'm thinking um, you know, 2035 or so.
1: Okay. Well, Rick, thank you for this uh, enlightened overview. I am very appreciative. I wish you every success in your work uh, going forward. Uh, thank you again. Yeah,
0: my pleasure. And if anybody wants more information, maps.org there's all sorts of information on our website.
1: Great. I will note that. Thanks again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare
0: Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.